0: Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist for at least 25 years, I guess, and my kid's dentist too. He's a national speaker on Invisalign, using that technology to improve his patient's smiles and positioning including my son, Owen, who is just finishing up a stint in these liners. He loves that they don't look like traditional wire and bracket braces, and they don't hurt when he gets battered around playing basketball. and Dental has always prioritized safety precautions to stop the spread of disease, and I think their office is one of the safest places in Amarillo. Follow and Dental on Facebook to learn more, or visit Shimandental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. Today's guest is Malin Huntley. Malin is one of those people who has had a really unique career path. She's a fine artist. She worked in graphic design for years. She spent time in an administrative capacity with the Amarillo Independent School District. And now she is the elections administrator for Potter County. So we talk a lot about her work history in this episode, but we spend a lot of time talking about this November's election. It's a presidential election year, of course, and the past months have been filled with disinformation, extreme partisanship, worries about voting fraud, worries about outside interference. Uh, As of Friday, the idea that a Supreme Court justice seat is now on the line, and it's all happening during a pandemic. So for all those reasons and more, this may be one of the most significant elections in our lifetimes, and Malin is in charge of making sure it goes smoothly for the half of Amarillo that lives in Potter County. So, you know, no pressure. Here's Malin Huntley. Malin Huntley, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So I know that there's a lot of stuff we can talk about given uh, this fall being a big election and your role in that. But before we get to any of that stuff, I want to start with the question I start with for every guest and ask you why you're here. How did you end up in Amarillo and the Texas Panhandle?
1: I was born and raised here. I'm one of those people who went 120 miles down the road to Texas Tech for a few years. But other than that, I never left. So that's how I ended up here.
0: Okay. So grew up in Amarillo your whole life. Where did you go to high school?
1: I went to Tascosa High School. Okay. And, um, my parents had an antique shop at Third and Western. It was called Miller's antiques, okay? Um it's you know, and they've it's been they've been gone for many, many years. but um, so I was raised by. Um, my dad was actually an accountant who discovered that he didn't like accounting, and my mother was a free spirit, and they ended up as antique dealers. And so, um,
0: it's a good place to be an antique dealer. I mean, there's a there's a lot of antique traffic that it comes is. down, you know, Route <laughs> 66 and Sixth Street and all that stuff.
1: It is. So yes, that's how I got to be here.
0: Do you know how they ended up in this area?
1: Yes, my mother was from here. Okay. And so. My dad was was from Sudan, Texas, and when they got out of when he got out of the army and they were married, they decided to come back here.
0: I'm always interested in the thought process of people like yourself who grew up here, then went away to college, and mm-hmm. then ended up coming back. A lot of people are trying to get out, and once they get a taste of the life outside Amarillo, you know mm-hmm. they don't return, or maybe they return once they have kids or something like that. What was your mindset? You know, when you went away to tech,
1: well. My mindset was, um, and this, is, this sounds terrible, my father told me that I better graduate with my MRS degree.
0: Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> he wanted you to go find a husband then. That's
1: exactly, what, that's exactly the degree he wanted me to have. I wanted more than that, but I ended up finding and marrying someone from Amarillo. And so um, it was just natural that we would come back here. Of my siblings, I'm the only one that's still here. Really? Mm-hmm.
0: Did you know what you wanted to do with your life when you went away to college? I mean, was it the process of kind of figuring it out, or did you have a plan?
1: Well, my original plan was I was going to be a business major, and when I was at Tech, uh, there was an arts competition, and you could enter something that a piece that you did and. So I entered something I did in high school, and I got a $100 scholarship, but the caveat was I had to change majors. I had to major in something in art. So at that time, I go through the halls of the art department, and there's all this really weird stuff on the the walls, and I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, these people are going to starve to death. They will never be able to earn a living doing this. And then I discovered graphic design. Hmm. So that's what caused me to change majors. Because uh, kind of a a funny story at Tascosa, when I was taking art, the art teacher told me I had no talent, but that I was smart. Okay. And so, and I believed him. So, I thought I needed to go to college to do something smart.
0: Okay. As opposed to art. You can can be a dummy and still make it art, you know? (laughs)
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, um, that's why I started in one part. And then I decided, gosh, if they're willing to give me a whole hundred dollars to change my major, then maybe I am something beyond smart.
0: So, I want to be careful and not have you like totally date yourself. Uh, Yes. But. I'm a graphic I'm a graphic designer. Mm-hmm. You uh you ended up doing graphic design. Tell me about the period where design was when you started doing it because mm-hmm. You know, early 90s, when I got my start, was a period of intense change. And I know you're exactly, a little bit ahead of me in that regard. Exactly, exactly.
1: I started on a drafting board. Okay. And so when I went to school, we we illustrated by hand. We um, So it was
0: pre-Macintosh. We,
1: it was, it was. So, you know, I started with um, ad agencies here in Amarillo in the late 70s, early 80s. And then Illustrator 88 came around right. in 1988. And so we all had to learn a different way. But to begin with, it wasn't all that functional. So there was a hybrid in there.
0: Yeah. And And these were like Macs, you know, that were, you know, those classics, you know, the little beige boxes and everything was black and white. Yes. Screens were about 10 inches by eight inches.
1: (laughs) Yes. And we all thought this will never catch on.
0: Yeah. (laughs) It will never happen. Do, so tell me about that process of already being in that industry, when there's this huge shift, or at least the shift is beginning from the drafting board to a desktop computer publishing kind of Well, and, and
1: you know what? I value the fact that I started before then because when you started before then, you had a lot of classes in just design mm-hmm. and what makes good design. Like theory
0: and kinds of classes.
1: Yes, yes, and what makes for good design, good, you know, the that part of it and less of the nuts and bolts of what you'd have to do with a computer at that time. And so I I value the fact that I've had one foot in one world and one
0: in the other. So you came back to Amarillo um, as a graphic designer, having gone Mm -hmm. to school? I mean, did did you have a degree when you finished I had a degree.
1: I I finished at WT. Okay. And um, my first job in Amarillo paid $300 a month. All right. And I thought... I was just rolling in it. Yeah. <laughs> so I worked for my first ad agency job was, was Dan Smith Advertising, which spun off into several other companies. And I worked for DBNA Advertising for a while and was their creative director. Ended up being a freelancer. Okay. And I worked for other ad agencies. Um, worked from home. Liked working from home. Liked being able to to work with a variety of people and Mm -hmm. not just in one necessarily flavor or genre. I fell in love with social marketing, which is kind of a really specific area and uh, just centered on that for a good while.
0: So define that for for listeners that don't know what social marketing means.
1: Social marketing would be marketing a behavior, trying to affect people's behaviors versus um, encouraging them to go with a service or product. Okay. So one of my early projects was with was for the Amarillo Area Foundation for Worth the Wait to address uh, teen pregnancy okay. rates in Amarillo, and so that would be a really good example of where we were trying to market a different behavior, and uh, it was just one of those things that I found very fascinating human behavior and and such, and so. Didn't have a degree in it, but did a, you know as much research as I possibly could. In about 15 years ago, um, my husband died. And I suddenly, and, and I had a seven-year-old. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so all of a sudden, I'm at home. The walls are kind of caving in on me. I find myself wanting to leave the house all the time. Because you
0: were still working for yourself I was at still, home. You weren't in an office place. Or...
1: Right. And so financially, I didn't need to make a change. But for myself, I needed to make a change. I needed to be around people because I was getting out, and the way I was getting around people was I was shopping. Yeah. <laughs> And I could see that that was not a good long term solution. Yeah. It can me. be dangerous. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. And so um, someone called me and told me that there was this job at AISD that they thought I might be good for, you know, that I might be a good fit. So I just, I'm kind of laughing, thinking, yeah, I'm not going to work for this, you know, for the school district. But I get on the website and I start looking, and it's a social marketing job. Wow. And it was um, alcohol rates. Initially it was alcohol rates. And so I start to fill out the application, discover that, that that it's going to close in two and a half hours. And everything on this application was my teaching experience, of which I have none. So I click off of it. Someone else calls and says, Hey, there's a job I think that you might be good at. And so click back in and I thought, okay, I'm gonna humor everybody. So I turn in this application that was really three quarters blank right, totally blank, and that was a Thursday. I get a call that day at five fifteen asking if I could come for an interview at nine or nine thirty the next morning, so I interview I get a call that afternoon at three that says, "Can you start Monday? Wow, and I was like, I have no childcare, you know. Am I right for this? Can I do some research? <laughs> but that's when everything changed. So I went to work for AISD, where I wrote the grant for Safe Schools, Healthy Students, and that that I ended up moving over to. And and that particular grant was designed to prevent school shootings
0: hmm.
1: by addressing the um, behaviors that tend to be present when a school shooting happens. And so that would be gangs, substance abuse. Uh, bullying and unaddressed mental health issues, and after we got that, I ended up directing that for another six, seven years.
0: Did that feel like a big switch from the marketing that you'd been doing? I mean, maybe not the marketing side. You'd you'd been doing a lot of graphic design, which mm-hmm. is a very visual kind of thing, and then you're in a uh, directing what almost feels like a a nonprofit arm. You know, where you're working with kids, you're writing grants, you're doing you know, mm-hmm. things with like this bigger social goal.
1: Yes, exactly. It, it was completely different from graphic design. And so anything that I had going on in the art world just kind of took a back seat for a while, but it was totally in line with the social marketing that I have a love for. And so um, it fit. And it was something that I totally loved, plus I loved the purpose of what I was doing.
0: Yeah, the, the purpose is an interesting issue. I know as someone who comes – my story is very similar to yours, um, having been a creative director and a graphic designer and then moving out and doing it for myself. And, and you um, find you
1: have to wear th- Yeah, you have to wear, hats. you have to wear all the hats.
0: Multiple different um, industries, clients, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's always this you – know, sort of this disconnect when you think, am, am I advertising – helping somebody advertise something I believe in, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's a product, whether it's an idea, um, because you are trying to change behavior, Yes. but is like, is am I contributing something good into the world <laughs> into by doing society, this, you know? Yes. And so you have a lot of people like in our position that end up doing nonprofit stuff or mm-hmm. working for causes or things that they believe in, because I think there's that personal shift. There is. Um, you, you, you want to be putting all this effort into something that's positive that's positive and not just mm-hmm. trying to get a person to buy a product that you don't care about.
1: Right, exactly. And so, yes, that shift does happen. And so, for me, it was finding that purpose and making people's lives better.
0: How long did you work uh, within that world?
1: That was another eight years. Okay. And then the grant, you, you know when you are have signed on to to work with a grant, that when the grant money goes away, you go away. Exactly,
0: yeah. And you know You that created your own funding, <laughs> and you know that has got a time limit on it.
1: Yes, and so um, I knew that the, that the job would come to an end, and it did, and again, it was kind of a now what? You know, where do I go from here? And um, the next thing that I did was I decided to take some time for myself, and I did an oil painting boot camp. Okay. In New Mexico, and it was a very intense, you know, let's just get out our brushes, let's go for it. And um, when I started the boot camp, I knew so little about oil painting that I get this list of things I needed to bring, and it said a medium cup. It meant a medium cup. Yeah, and I did not know what that term meant. You and
0: thought it was a size. It was a size designation.
1: <laughs> and so, so um, I learned a great deal doing that. But I also it sparked something that I had put aside for a good number of years. Yeah.
0: So you'd done that in high school. You gotten a scholarship for it. I, yes.
1: And I had. Had you like not it,
0: done anything in the?
1: I had done it fine arts from time to time. I just picked up some brushes and done something, but not really. Because when I was at WT, I studied under Dr. Emilio Caballero. Okay, so I had some watercolor classes with him. So occasionally I would, but no, I had put everything aside. I'd raised family, I'd done everything I need else that I need to do. So this was kind of my time to say, Okay, let's pick up the brushes and let's not put them down this time. It was right after I got back from the oil painting boot camp that I got the, a job offer from Potter County. Okay, and um, so I am the elections administrator. Right. I again, someone called me and said, "Hey, there's a there's a position I think you'd be good at," and this one is so business mm-hmm. that I'm so glad now that I have my brushes.
0: <laughs> it's it's very administrative. Oh, so I, much. I'm curious about that because you're. Your career path is so weird, you know, graphic design to working for a school system Mm -hmm. in an administrative position, Mm -hmm. and then elections administrator, like nobody charts anything like that out as as they're planning a career. So what was it about that job that the person who said, hey, there's a job I think you'd be good at? Mm -hmm. Like, why? Why did they think that?
1: Because of the administration part that I had done with the school district. And because being an election administrator means coordinate a Coordinating a good number of people, so you know. And but I didn't know that at the time. I thought when I applied for it, I thought, you know, I can count votes, and and I thought it was going to be that simple and yeah. that direct. I had no clue what when everything that goes into this. But when you're an election administrator, one thing that you do is you plan the world's biggest parties because every election you've got to plan for thousands of people to come. You don't know if anybody is rsvp'd mm-hmm. you don't know that anybody's showing up
0: but and at multiple locations it's not everybody coming to one part no, location for the party you're, you're planning a party no, with you I know think, 20 I, different venues yes
1: exactly i think i could be a wedding planner at this point that you know that would be something that i have the ability to do but you're doing that and you're coordinating a lot of we call them election volunteers they're actually paid workers but you're coordinating a whole lot of people with that come to you, some with professional skills, some without. And you've got to bring everyone up to a certain level. Mm-hmm. So um, it's been probably the hardest job I have ever done. And right now I'm looking at the hardest job I've ever done and probably the hardest election in years right? For the for America.
0: So what year did you start um, this job as the elections administrator? October
1: the 1st, 2013.
0: Okay. So So I started right before an election? Like,
1: yes, but it was a constitutional amendment election.
0: Okay. So it wasn't a big,
1: it was not 2013. Yeah. So it
0: wouldn't, wasn't a presidential year, Mm -mm. um, kind of an in between sort of election. period.
1: Yes. Yes. And so I had time to build up to, so this will be my second presidential. Okay. And two thousand. Sixteen, we all thought this is the worst it's ever been. It was just what it was seemed chaotic, right, at times, and um, so we thought there there can never be anything harder than that. And here we are, and here we, and then twenty twenty happened. Yeah.
0: So I, I want to talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts, um, you know, not not just with the presidential election year. Um, but, you know, just a, a general election year, maybe 2018 or maybe a primary election, like what are the things that you're trying to, that all the things you're trying to juggle, you know, in mm-hmm. order to make it happen? Talk to me about some of some of the details.
1: Okay. Well, we program our own elections. So there is getting everything programmed.
0: And like then, actually in the election, in
1: the election machines in the, that the, yes, the people use. Y- yes. Um, we do our own programming. But then, and... We have to test every step that we do to make sure that everything is programmed correctly. We have to take we do testing, including, you know, actually casting some test ballots, and the outcomes have to make sure that your vote went to that candidate. Okay. And not to the other candidate. Right. So everything has to be tied in and it's tested multiple times. So we have everything in the background that that ensures the efficacy of the election. Then we have to manage the ballots by mail, the applications for ballots by mail, the voter registrations, getting everything tied in there, programming the poll pads, um, recruiting and training all your election workers, getting equipment out, getting it set up, all the phone calls that happen on election day, everybody calling with their Question of well, I heard this, yeah, and you know, or or I want to do this, and I want you know those kind of of issues that people have. So we answer tons of phone calls. I like to see elections come because I do think they're in a in a warped way very fun. <laughs> it's just you know, um, but my favorite day is always the day after the election hmm.
0: because it's over.
1: Because it's over.
0: Tell me a little bit about the night of an election after people have been voting all day and you're mm. in a position of having to report, you know, to the mm-hmm. media, mm-hmm. to the candidates, whatever it is, um, you know, people are wanting to know what are the votes, what who's are the votes? winning. Yes. Um, how do you go about tabulating, ensuring the accuracy what, and all that kind of okay, stuff? Okay, so
1: what, what actually happens on election day? And you know, for us, election day, there you, we have a push of adrenaline all day long because our, we're on the line all day long. And so, from we we start that day about five thirty in the morning, and we will end that day about ten thirty or eleven at night if everything goes well. So it is a very very long day, and we're exhausted by the end of the day. So, um, but as far as getting tabulations and things like that out, we do not begin actual tabulation till election day.
0: Okay, and even so, like advanced ballots, early voting, early all voting that ballots.
1: Stuff. No, we we. We do and we will scan them in. They're scanned in in batches, but nothing goes back over and is combined until election day. And even at that, our system is set up to where even the people in the office cannot find out what the results are until 7. Okay. We can't print it out <laughs> until 7. But um, so we have everything from early voting, every all of the ballots by mail in the system ready to push print. Hmm. And at 7.01, we go back and we push print and it comes out and that's the first time we can see what's actually been happening.
0: Okay. I I think a question that a lot of people will have is, you know, you're relying on a system, you've got all the stuff tabulated, you're pressing print and it's telling you Mm -hmm. a number. Is there any part of it that is checking by hand or tabulating, you know, without just relying on computers to do that for you, but, like, the, the accuracy part. Yes. Um, obviously, you want to take human error out of the equation, and that's why we use computers. Right. But then you also want to make sure those are doing the right thing. So, like, how do those two things work?
1: Those, that works because we are required to do a manual hand count. Okay. And that's a few days after the election. So on election night, what you get is the unofficial, and that's what we call it because we still have to go back in and we go into the background and there's things we have to check to make sure that everything worked uh, you know one thing about that voters don't realize is how many redundancies there are and how many things that you can go back and see what happened you know what really is happening in the background right and so from working there we we know that we know that we know that what we're pushing out is correct but we still have to check it
0: so I I know that because of your position, we have to avoid anything that smells of partisanship. Correct. Um, but I I do know, and, and you've mentioned you know how big of a deal this election is. Mm-hmm. Everything's kind of happening. Um, in addition to COVID being a complicating factor, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the past year and even since 2016 of interference in the elections. Yes, whether it's Russian interference. Uh, whether it's campaigns coming from, you know, international entities or trying to get into the system mm-hmm. or people trying to cheat, you know, and, and whether uh, mail-in ballots, you know, are um, uh, are going to be counted wrong. There's Everybody's got, like, all this confusion about it. Yes. I wonder about what you think, as the person running this show for Potter County, what you think about that. Like, mm-hmm. Like, what's the reality of how possible is it for something to be tampered with.
1: Tampering with equipment is, if I gave someone the keys to the kingdom mm-hmm. and I let them have access to my equipment, they could change things. But our election equipment is not ever, ever, ever connected to the internet.
0: Okay. So it's completely in a lockbox sort of thing.
1: Yes. Yes. Um, they're they're in not just lockboxes. It's basically vaults is okay. what they call them. We're, 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 there's only about three people that even have access to the equipment. Um, and if I go in there and I make a keystroke, it's recorded and it's, and it's tied to me. So um, we know exactly who has touched anything. But, so we, we push information out. So obviously, at some point, something's been connected. Right. So when we get a flash drive, um, we, don't tr- we buy high end flash drives, but we don't trust them hmm. just in case something's running in the background. Sure. So the first thing they do is they go to what's called a sandbox. And a sandbox is that is that is Department of Defense compliant. And what this this is a standalone, not connected to the internet, it has software on it that when we put in that flash drive, it completely wipes anything that could have been placed on that that flash drive, that okay. device. And it takes fifteen to forty five minutes to completely wipe one, so it's not a quick process. So but We take that flash drive and we do put those into our election equipment to push out reports. Hmm. So I take that report that's going to be put on our website with the results or sent to the media or something like that. I put that in one of our computers at the front and that's where we push things out. And then we can never, ever, ever use that flash drive again. Okay. So as far as something touching the election equipment... There's not a way to do it. So, like a
0: voting machine, some outside Russian hacker or somebody is not going to be able to connect to it on election day to change anything because it's just not connected. It's not, it doesn't have that ability.
1: And one of the neat things about Texas, you know, all of the election equipment has to be approved at the federal level and then it has to be approved at the state level. The federal standards are lower than Texas. Wow, okay. Texas are a lot higher. So, we don't have that many choices in election equipment because a lot of the companies don't pass muster with Texas.
0: Got it. And so the other complicating factor is that this election will happen during a pandemic. So a lot of people are worried about uh, that they may not want to stand in line you know, at the polls, which in Amarillo, the lines have never been super long. I mean, we've got enough polling places, enough people who early vote that that's not always a big issue. But if they just don't want to get out of the House, um, they can request a mail-in ballot. Is that true? Yes and no. Okay, so talk okay. to me about that,
1: <laughs> okay, so mail in ballots there's four reasons in Texas that you may apply for to vote by mail you can you must be over sixty five disabled, confined to jail with the right to vote, or you're going to be out of the county on election days like a student that's off to college okay, and so those are the four reasons and so um there isn't misinformation out there right now that says that you can apply to vote by mail because of fear of COVID. Mm-hmm. And the Texas Attorney General issued an opinion that he, saying that fear of contracting COVID is not a disability. His interpretation of the Texas Election Code. Okay, And at this time, the courts have upheld that and kind of everything is just where it is.
0: So it would require like a, a new law to it be would. passed and th- to allow people to use that as a reason.
1: Exactly. In Texas, it would. And, and the courts have basically said, we're not in the business of making law. Okay. So they didn't weigh in on, on that. Um, but if you have a condition that makes you more susceptible to contract COVID and a lot of those conditions you can find on the CDC's website, that is considered acceptable. So our elections office has no jurisdiction to determine whether you're disabled or not. Okay. When somebody says they're disabled, you believe them. Yes. We don't have any authority to question it. And so we don't. But, you know, those are the parameters around that.
0: So if somebody requests a mail in ballot, then
1: and they odds if,
0: are good that they are going to receive if, a mail in ballot. If they
1: have one of those four reasons. Okay. And th- that they select.
0: And then if they do that, do, do you share any of the concerns about? whether those might be treated differently or might be you know, subject to some sort of tampering or, or anything like that?
1: Um, I am not concerned. And, um, and I will tell you that, that um, our postmaster here has reached out to us, and, and, and we kind of went through a dry run, a practice run in July of how things will be. So when we're mailing out a good number of ballots by mail, I let him know. And he lets the folks here know all hands on deck, watch for these, take good care of these people.
0: Right. Because those are like treated as as high priority things to make sure they're delivered in a timely fashion, protected, all that kind of stuff. Correct.
1: That's right. So I don't, um, I'm not worried about it. But with that said, we are telling everyone who's voting by mail that when you get your ballot, if you know who you want to vote for, don't delay. Right. Vote it, put it in the mail. Get this done, which
0: I think both political parties are saying at this point. Do it as let's let's avoid any possibilities Mm -hmm. of lines or hiccups or anything like that, and just do it early. Right. Tell me how the pandemic is impacting some of your poll workers. I Mm -hmm. I know a lot of the people who do that, at least Mm -hmm. in my experience, when I go to vote in person, uh, is that they tend to be older uh, because mm -hmm. they have free time, they can volunteer, they can work on election day. But that also places them in a position where they may have some of those pre-existing conditions, they may be more susceptible to the virus, and they're coming into contact with a bunch of people. Right. So how? what are you having to do to protect them or to <laughs> maybe find your way around that?
1: Well, we have a good number who have said, no, thank you. Okay. Um, so I have some gaps where I had a lot of people who were trained that I, that I know that, that they know what to do, but they have opted to not work at this time. So that creates some holes. In addition, in July, the day before election day for the runoff, we had 15% of my workers who woke up and said, it may be nothing, but my head is pouring or I have this symptom. And what do you want me to do?
0: 15%. is a pretty significant number.
1: Mm -hmm. And of course, my only answer can be, sorry, you're going to have to stay home. So with that in mind, we are recruiting more people than we hope to need, and we're going to be training more people than we hope that we will need. And um, because... So we're going to have a lot of brand new people, which is really scary to me because... They know nothing. They I know nothing experience. about them. It is. It's going to be. It could be the most incredible blind date you've ever been on, or yeah. the worst. <laughs> so, um, but we have a lot of people who are stepping up. But we still have a need.
0: Okay. And I, I know we talk about it a lot as as election volunteers or volunteer poll workers. But it, it actually is a paid position for the day. Is that accurate? It is. It's a paid gig. It's twelve
1: dollars an hour. We pay you for the training, which is two hours. Okay. And then election day is approximately six AM to seven or eight PM. And that pays as well if you're working early voting and you end up working more than forty hours in a week, then you get time and a half. Wow. So it's not it's not free, you know, to the people we that Hours can be long, yeah, but um, it's not a bad paycheck to get
0: just before Christmas. On election day, let's say you work a single day, is it a the full day or do you like have shift working?
1: We try to get people to do the full day, okay. Um, I sometimes will do a shift between 10 and about three because that is historically when most people vote, all right. And so we will run extra people that will c- could work a short sh- shorter shift during those hours so that people can our other workers can eat so that and so that we can handle the bigger crowd
0: who are you looking for in terms of potential poll workers to fill in some of those gaps is is there a certain kind of person beyond like I can be available on a Tuesday, you know. Yes. What what are you what are you looking for?
1: Um, well that first of all, by law they have to be registered voters in Potter County.
0: Okay. And so I live in Randall. I couldn't go you can't work in work Potter for County. Me, but
1: you could I could for Randall. You could for Randall. Right. And so we're looking for that. We will be teaching the electronics, the the technology. We like people that can catch on to technology more quickly. Everything is easy. It's very intuitive, but if you're not someone who works with technology, you can't work your phone, you don't know how to turn on your television set, then this might not be the job for you. Because a
0: lot of that, like public facing is taking place like on an iPad, getting people to sign Mm -hmm. and filling in all the the information. That kind of thing, yes.
1: And so, you know, what wire goes where? Just kind of some basic things. And so... um, People who are very adaptive to that, those are ideal for us. We like people who can be on their feet at least some of the time because a lot of our positions, yes, you do sit for a good number of hours, but we need people who can assist voters in line or assist voters going to a polling machine. And so we need people who can also stand for a while.
0: Okay. There's a customer service aspect of it too. I mean, you're dealing with people, so you need to be able to you know, talk to people who might be a little bit impatient if they've been waiting longer mm-hmm. than they expect, or maybe they don't really understand the machines. Like, you've, you've got to be a good people person.
1: You do. And you also have to have the ability to put your personal political beliefs behind. Okay. And just set them aside for the day because. You can't
0: come in with your MAGA shirt or your Biden hat oh, man, no, or anything no, no, no. like no, that. No, no, no. So. You can't
1: do that. But when someone does come in and. You, there is no electioneering but but people do tend to come to the front and they want to say something about who they cannot wait to vote for right and so you cannot roll your eyes okay <laughs> you, know? you 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 know you have to just have a poker face about a lot of things
0: now i i know when you're looking for poll workers you're looking for individuals across the political spectrum like Absolutely. you want like do you literally have to have as many Democrats as Republicans working for you? Are, are there regulations there? Yes,
1: we too try to have a balance of Republicans and Democrats. We do have a lot of, of election workers, though, that will put undecided. Okay. And we can use those as either, either party to help balance the poll.
0: Do you determine that by self reporting or is it based on which Self-report. primary? Because I know a lot of people might be a Democrat, but they vote in Republican primaries because mm-hmm. they know. Right. That's who's going to be elected, you know, in Randall County or Amarillo. Yes. So is it is it just based on what you say?
1: Yes, we, we use self-reporting for okay. that.
0: I, I wonder a little bit, if, if there's anybody who's interested uh, in, in maybe doing that, like mm-hmm. what kind of training is involved? Is it just a couple hours of training?
1: It is a couple of hours, and um, we do hands-on. So we they get their hands on the machines, we show them how they work, we let them play with it, we give some of the basics of the law that they need to know, we show them how a polling site is set up mm-hmm. and um, how it's taken down. Those kind of those basic things. So it is more we teach more processes than okay. anything else.
0: The last thing I wanted to ask you on this is understanding the amount of interest in this election, all the complicating factors.
1: Okay, and I'm I'm going to make you go back to one that you okay. started. Okay, you you alluded to. Interference from foreign entities. Yes, and um, yes, we did have interference in 2016, which we know about, and we are already expecting and seeing runs at some state systems um, that are not being successful. But yes, those attempts are there. And but you the- say
0: that like like hacking types of mm-hmm. attacks. Okay. Yes,
1: and election officials uh, receiving phishing emails, and you know. And so we, election officials all across the country, were tied in with the FBI and the and Homeland. And so when something that happens like that, we get notification of what to be aware of. Okay. So um, which is is a good thing to see. But what what is most likely to get through and most likely to happen is misinformation that you're going to see on social media. Okay. And. Um, the foreign entities, what they really want to do is keep us all turned up. Sure. And it does not matter which side of the aisle you're on, uh, what the issue is, the goal is unrest. And those will get through. And we have a choice as to whether to believe what we see on social media.
0: So possibly the biggest issue is not an outside actor getting into the voting machines but creating, like, this distrust of the institution itself. Like, yes. that's the biggest fear, and that's the thing that we can control the least.
1: Yes, that is true, except individually.
0: Right. And like, our, you can't fix that.
1: I can't fix that. Individuals
0: can fix, you know, whether they only, believe And they can only fix
1: themselves. And so um, that is the biggest risk, in my opinion, to this election.
0: Do you have any worries beyond that? About election day?
1: Oh, of course.
0: (laughs) You know know what? Because your entire job comes down to this one day. (laughs) Yes, I I can't imagine. That's
1: exactly right. And because um, if you worry about, you know, if you worry and you prepare for what might happen, it doesn't happen. It's just proof that worrying works. So, so yes, I do. I do worry about that. I worry about um, issues that are going on in the country spilling over to inside the polling sites Mm -hmm. I worry about election workers getting sick I worry about our office getting sick and what you know what will happen in that case and um, and so yes I you know I have worries that will that I will celebrate the end of yeah (laughs) at 7 o'clock on November the 3rd
0: so I I want to close the section by turning it back to Amarillo but through the window of your work with elections, you know, is, is there something that having gotten into this new career, you know, it's not new to you at this point, but mm-hmm. at, at one point it was, um, where you're dealing with, you know, the, the residents of Potter County, um, you know, on a regular basis, you're seeing how they vote and whether or not they vote and, and all those things like, is, is there something that it's kind of taught you mm-hmm. about the city or about the people that live here and, 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 you know, whether it's how seriously we take elections or how we work together, I mean, what, what's something that, that maybe it's kind of opened your eyes to?
1: What I've learned is that I love people from all walks. Okay. And that... Um, Cause
0: Potter County is a diverse county.
1: Extremely, I mean, extremely, socioeconomically, uh, politically, you know, every demographic that you have, we have the extremes, and I have learned to appreciate all of our differences, and uh, what I find is that if you really take the time to listen to people, that there are wonderful things that they have to say that I, I never knew.
0: As you heard Malin mention, a lot of her regular poll workers are retired residents of Potter County, which puts them at risk during a pandemic. So she would love some backup in the form of young, healthy, technology-comfortable residents who are willing and available to help on November 3rd as a poll worker. Or even before November 3rd with early voting. This is actually a paid position, it requires just a little bit of training, and it's probably one of the most significant things you can do to ensure a free and fair election this November. The same goes if you live in Randall County, which also needs poll workers. As Malin said, you have to be a resident of the county where you serve. So to apply to help with the polls in Potter County, go to pottercountyvotes.com. And Randall, go to randallcounty.com and click the poll worker survey link in the left-hand column. And we're back with Malen Huntley of Potter County. Malin, this is the part of the show I call eight straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon on the WT campus. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes at least eight works of art from Hudson River School Painters, which is, honestly, that's one of my favorite uniquely American art movements. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, Melin, I'm going to ask you eight straight questions, and as my guest, you get to answer those in as much detail as you want. Um, The first one is a new one I've been asking all summer, but it's What's one thing the last few months, whether it's related to the pandemic or the protests, what has it revealed to you about Amarillo?
1: Okay, it's something I, I alluded to earlier, it is our propensity for believing what we read in social media or hear for, from a friend, okay, without taking the time to check it out to see if it's true. And I have people that I dearly love on every side of these issues, and if they took a moment to actually research some things, they would come down a few notches in terms of Mm -hmm. their emotions.
0: There's a lot of research that shows that social media, instead of being a place for people to hear from every side, ends up being an echo chamber. It does, And so we only see the things that appeal to what we already believe. And so anything that contradicts that, we immediately dismiss or we don't see it at all. Mm-hmm. And so it just continues to to add fire to whatever we think we we understand already. And so yes, there's mis-education, or misinformation mm-hmm. and a lack of education and nobody's changing any minds. No. We're all just reinforcing what we believe already. What they
1: choose to believe in yeah. the first place. And the same thing can be true of news media. If you listen to the, if you go to the same pond and you drink that same water all the time, you're going to get the same information. And so if I could say one thing, I would encourage people to look at
0: multiple sources. Mm-hmm. And and not the, always within the same category, too. Like, it, don't all, mm-hmm. only consume right-wing media. Don't only consume media that has maybe a, a left-wing bias. But try to get multiple sources of information. Absolutely. Somewhere in the middle, you're going to get the truth. Somewhere. Hopefully.
1: Or not. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so... But that, that's something that's revealed about Amarillo, is that so many of us are just kind of encapsulated in that bubble, and we don't often get out of that. That is true. All right. Mm-hmm. I like think that's accurate, and probably not just in Amarillo. Yes. What's your favorite story or location from the two neighborhood art projects you've been involved with? That's the question. We probably should offer some context, because we didn't get to it in our initial conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but as But as an artist, you were sort of the organizer of the North Heights Art Project and the Barrio Neighborhood Art Project, mm-hmm. uh, both of which were very successful, and were instrumental in telling the stories through art of a lot of the history of those two neighborhoods. Yes. Um, so I wanted to ask you a little bit, maybe why you started those, and then then talk to me about you know what you what you ended up loving about it.
1: Okay. And and my favorite story from this was the one that really started me thinking. Okay. And it was you know the whole thing started after attending a a cultural diversity training. And um, in this training, Prentice Williams mentioned that Duke Ellington, Ike and Tina Turner, a lot of people that that you know of performed in Amarillo but could not stay at a hotel. Yeah. And that is the story that just was gut-wrenching for me. Because
0: as entertainers, as black entertainers, you know, in the, what, 1930s, 1940s, and Mm -hmm. 50s even... They were in demand. Yes. But because of segregation, they were unable to stay in traditional hotels. Exactly.
1: And that is what really started me down the road of the history of Amarillo and things that I did not know. And the more that I learned about the Barrio or North Heights area, the more I realized how much I don't know and how much I need to learn. And so, uh, but that is that was my favorite story. And the back end of that was, well, where did they stay? They stayed in the homes of a lot of people in the North Heights neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea of entertaining strangers or being willing to open up your door to others fascinated me. And I really, you realize how enriched some people were because Duke Ellington stayed in their home. Yeah, and I just, find, you know, that to me was just. Amazing or I can Tina you know can you imagine if you know you could just look at your grandkids and say oh yeah you know I'm fixed them a peanut butter sandwich I mean <laughs> yeah that that was that was probably my favorite story of all
0: of it that there there are homes in the North Heights that today may not look like much or maybe mm-hmm. they've turned into something else right but you could drive past it and would have no idea that Duke Ellington probably gave a private concert to yes. five or six people. You know, one night in, in the 1930s.
1: Exactly. After he entertained the rest of Amarillo, the band went back to this home and the neighborhood came Yeah. and they got a free concert in the backyard. Just how amazing is that? So, um, But that's what started the whole thing was that story. And as I drive to work every day, I would drive through the neighborhood and I saw a lot of the buildings and they were being torn down or they were just falling in disrepair and I just couldn't help but wonder about the stories. And I just... Believed that we needed to capture this history before we lost it, yeah, and what i what you learn is that that history had been was being passed down verbally to family members and from one generation to the next, and I just you know it was one of those things that I wanted to see shared and wanted to see captured in a better
0: way okay and um you know, the the art projects were a way to capture it, not mm-hmm. only give us an opportunity, and I say us yes because I was involved in it yes. too, but give <laughs> us an opportunity to tell those <laughs> stories, but also to have, you know, artists recreate, you, yes. know, you know, paintings and works of art, art that were related to those buildings and those moments in the history of Amarillo.
1: Yeah, because, you know, when you, and, and it was someone who attended the first show at North Heights, and their comment was you could read the history and you learned it in your head. You could see the the art on the wall and suddenly you knew it in your heart. And so it's a great combination to capture history through art. And um, it became even more than I had imagined it to be. And hoping that um, we're already in talks with San Jacinto So I've got to finish an election. Sure. But I'm hoping that 2020 will go away. Yeah. (laughs) And that in 2021, we're going to see another neighborhood arts project.
0: Okay. Yeah, the the last one, the barrio, when we were able to get finished, you know, just about a month before things shut down.
1: We got under the radar with that Those blissful
0: (laughs) times. Yes. The before times. Yes. Um, Okay. What does this area have too much of?
1: You know, I debated, and and I landed on ragweed. I almost went with wind. but I just <laughs> Ragweed I, is a good answer, I, and it's not
0: one that I've heard before. So I'm,
1: I'm going with ragweed.
0: <laughs> uh, do, you, do you have a personal connection to ragweed? Does that um,
1: bother you? Well, you know, whether it's ragweed, ragweed or the, the tumbleweeds that you mm-hmm. have to avoid on the highway, it's all the same plant. And so, no, I just have
0: a disdain for ragweed. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. What does this area not have enough of?
1: 10,000 foot mountains okay and preferably with a good amount above timber line, which means we also need more timber.
0: Okay I, uh, I can completely agree with you on that. There's um,
1: I am a mountain girl. that is my, my second place to be and you know, I would not mind a few a mountain range near Amarillo.
0: There, there's something at, at least for me, I, I drive to the mountains all the time. And that that first moment where you can actually see them, mm-hmm. always like I just always feel at peace. Like it's it's so welcome, and I think just being able to see one like on a regular basis would would have a, a really good you <laughs> yes. know emotional impact on me.
1: And you're right, it's that first view, and especially if there's any snow on the very mm-hmm. top of it, that you're just like, huh, you know, yeah. and the the rest of the world melts away.
0: Okay, that's a good answer. What's the most underrated aspect of living in this area?
1: The number of days of sunshine. Okay. We very rarely have a week where there's nothing but clouds. And, and so to appreciate the sunshine every day is just something that I value.
0: Do you know what that number is? Have you seen it?
1: It's something I, like... I feel like it's
0: in the 300s. Oh, it's
1: way, way high in the 300s. It's something like 345. Yeah, something That's
0: incredible. Something
1: crazy because um, we did look it up one time. But it's way high our number of days, and you think about other parts of the country, and they don't they don't have this luxury. Oh,
0: it's yeah, it's cloudy in some parts of the Pacific Northwest, you know, for 300 days a year. Yes,
1: yes, or they have a haze caused by productive factories, whatever, mm-hmm. and so um, we are just truly blessed with sunshine.
0: All right, how do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area?
1: It is a wonderful place to grow up and a wonderful place to raise a family.
0: Okay. You've done both of those things, so you speak from experience. I do. I do. When was the last time you went to Cadillac Ranch?
1: Last time I went to Cadillac Ranch was uh, probably eight years ago. All right. And I took busloads of middle schoolers. Out there, And they painted uh, drug prevention messages on all of the Cadillacs. Oh, okay. And what was cool about that is there were a lot of students from some of the middle schools that didn't... Had, they had never been to Cadillac mm-hmm. Ranch. They didn't know it existed. They had never seen it. And uh, they were just fascinated with the Cadillacs. And yeah. so that was one of the coolest things.
0: That's, that's one of the things that, that always strikes me about um, some of the students who maybe grow up in poverty is that there are students who, until they go on some school field trip or or something like that, Mm -hmm. don't ever leave their neighborhood or never leave, you know, a, a two or three square mile radius around their home.
1: That is right. And so we took teams of them out there and we took their photographs with their message and we printed posters for their schools with the students on them.
0: Wow. Great. What's your favorite local restaurant?
1: Anything with the word Mexican in it.
0: Okay. <laughs> you, you don't care. You <laughs> no. Don't, if, you don't care the if, name. If,
1: if Mexican is, is in the name, then it's my favorite.
0: Okay. Even if it's uh, Tex-Mexican or... Yes. Uh, now,
1: Taco Bell does not count. Okay. So... That's the only one that's not on the list.
0: Okay. Yeah, I I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. Okay. It's all good. It's all good. Yes. Okay, Melinda, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So, what's Mm -hmm. one thing you would like listeners to know about or experience in this area?
1: Okay. This is absolutely from my heart. I would endorse people buying art directly from a local artist. Okay. Because you go into people's houses and they have gone to a box store or online and they bought a print that could be in a motel room in some place sure and you put that on the wall you're going to see it the first day and you're going to walk by it the rest of your life and never notice it and here in Amarillo we've got a lot of wonderful local artists whose art is no more expensive than what you would pay at a box store and when you buy an original piece or a piece um, from somebody like that you'll know the story about it you'll get a different appreciation about it and You'll support someone who is trying to thrive with their dream.
0: And you're an artist yourself, yes. Um, So I I know you're speaking from experience there. How, what are the best ways for people to find those artists and to figure out Mm -hmm. this is an artist I like or this artist produces art that I like? What's the best way to communicate with them and to go through that process of seeing stuff and buying it?
1: Um, Go down Sixth Street. A lot of since uh, sunset, arts in the sunset is no longer open or isn't open at this time. You can go there and you'll find a lot of the artists are on that street. Go to the Emerald Institute of Art, which is still at Sunset Center, mm-hmm. and a, there's a lot of artists there that are working. If there's art shows, attend them. And when you do an, a neighborhood arts project, you will see one piece by a lot of different artists. And while that may not be the piece you like, you may discover an artist that you want to see more art of. Right. So get out. And and but take the time and you know, you may think, Oh, I don't buy original art, I don't know art, I wouldn't know what to buy. You buy what you like. Yeah. It's not hard. And so if something speaks to you, if the story speaks to you, then that's where you need to be putting your money.
0: Okay. I like that. Melin Huntley, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it.
1: All right. Thanks, Jason.
0: And that concludes the episode. Thanks to Malen for the interview. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show every week. I want to say thanks also to Shim and Dental for sponsoring the show and to Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring Eight Straight each week. Again, head to PotterCountyVotes.com or RandallCounty.com to apply to be a poll worker this election season. Supporters of Hey Amarillo through Patreon include executive producers Barbara and Jim Witten, Griselda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Wilson Lemieux, Wes Reeves, and Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Jess Heredia, Neil Nossaman, Ryan Pennington, and Joshua Rafe. This has been episode 163. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.